Well, good morning, family. Good to be together today. I invite you to take your Bibles and open to the Gospel of John. We began a new series last week. I'd ask a question. What is the most crucial question that you have to answer in life? Is it what career you should pursue? Or who will you marry? What college should you go to? Paper or plastic? You know, what's the most crucial question that you have to answer in life? So many questions are very important, impact our life greatly, but by far the most important, most crucial question is the one that Jesus asked the disciples in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 15. He asked this question, he said, but who do you say that I am? Not what does everybody else say about Jesus. And not even really what words come out of your mouth, but really what he's asking is, who do you believe that Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? Because your whole view of life and everything in it, and as well as your eternal destiny, all hinge on your answer to that question. Toward the end of John's Gospel, he tells us that that is why he has written what he has written. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. As I said, last week we started a new series, a 14-week study in the Gospel of John, not going verse by verse as we often do through the book, but rather just taking 14 snippets, looking at 14 phrases that Jesus said, 14 occasions where Jesus says something about Himself and He uses these words, I am. He tells us about Himself in His own words. And so we've called the series, I am, Jesus in His own words. For the benefit of all y'all that were trapped at home last week in Ice-mageddon 2017. We began this series with Jesus having a chat with a a lady at the well. John chapter 4, a Samaritan woman, a, a most unusual encounter with a most unlikely person and with unique clarity of words, Jesus said, I am He and identified Himself to her as the Messiah, the Christ. I won't go all through that message, but if you weren't here last week, you can get it off the web, off our website, and it's also available on a CD in the back if you'd like to catch up. Today, we're two chapters later, so hopefully you've got your Bible open to the book of John. We're in John chapter 6, two chapters later, and about two years later than John chapter 4. And that puts us in the life and the ministry of Christ 
just a little over a year before Jesus is crucified on Calvary. John chapter 6 and our Focus this morning, the little phrase we're looking for is found in John chapter 6, verse 20. Jesus said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Now this, this little phrase is part of a story that's not unfamiliar. It's familiar ground to most of us. So, but let's go back just a few verses. Let's get the context. Let's get the story. John chapter 6, verse 16. And it says there that when evening came, the disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Matthew and Mark actually tell us, by the way, right here, that that the disciples didn't just go down to the boat. They tell us that Jesus made them. He he compelled them. He almost ordered them uh, to go down to the boat. I I picture him as the way as the story reads that Jesus is kind of like, you know, ushering them down to the boat. He kind of helps them into the boat and he pushes the boat off of shore. Because if he hadn't done that, the disciples would have stayed there. They didn't want to go. They didn't want to go because this was probably the most exciting day they have ever had in all their lives. And they've had a lot of exciting days with Jesus. This is at the high point of Jesus' popularity with the masses. And this day is probably the pinnacle of the high point of Jesus' popularity with the masses. And these guys want to bask in the glow of everything that happened. But in order to do that, we really need to back the train up just a little farther. Now because to really get the picture, we can't just grab it from John. What comes before this is the only miracle, by the way, that is in all four Gospels, the only miracle that Jesus does, not the only other miracle that's in all four Gospels, we might say would be the resurrection. That's not a miracle Jesus does. It was Jesus rose from the dead. But only this miracle. And each of the four Gospels gives a little different angle and some different detail. So I'm going to take just a minute and just give us a little kind of a compilation of what happens here. Early this morning of this day, or perhaps the night before, the disciples return to Capernaum. Capernaum is kind of Jesus' home base. Uh, it's, it's a town on the, on the western, northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples have returned from a preaching tour. Jesus had sent out the disciples in pairs, by twos, to go out and to preach. And He gave them authority to heal the sick and to cast out demons. He sent them out and then Jesus Himself went out on a preaching tour. And this lasted for several weeks, perhaps a month, even perhaps two months. And now the night, 
before or this morning, they have regathered in Capernaum. And I'm sure they have lots of stories that they can't wait to tell. Adventures to relate. Of all the things that God has done, all that's happened. All of Galilee was abuzz. Even King Herod had heard of this. He was alerted and he was alarmed at what was going on. There were huge crowds that followed these folks back to Capernaum. And because of the crowds, Jesus and the disciples aren't even able to eat, much less to really talk about what all has happened. And so Jesus knows they need some time to rest and debrief. And so He gets them together and they get in a boat. And they leave Capernaum and sail across the Sea of Galilee to go to a uninhabited place in the region of Bethsaida. However, the people watch them get in the boats and take off and everybody watches them from shore and the people start walking around or running around the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee and keep tabs on them. And by the time that Jesus and the disciples land on shore, there is already a crowd that is gathered to greet them. Eventually, We see in verse 10 here of John 6 that there were eventually 5,000 men there. If you add to that women and children, it means a crowd more like 15,000 to 25,000 people. A huge crowd, astoundingly huge crowd, one that would fill or overflow the Scott Trade Center, which only seats 19,000. And this crowd gathered in this spot or somewhere very nearby to this spot on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. There's a great need as Jesus looks at these people. He sees their spiritual need and and the Scripture says He had compassion upon them for they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so He teaches and He heals and teaches through the day and into the late afternoon. By then, everyone is famished. But there is no money to buy food for so many people. And even if they had funds, there were no concession stands. There were no grocery stores to buy so much food. They were so far out in the wilderness, there wasn't even a Casey's. And you know the story. Jesus provides miraculously for this crowd. All the food they could come up with from this entire crowd was five little flat, little cracker-like loaves and two pickled fish. (laughs) A little boy's lunch. And with that, Jesus feeds 20,000 or so people and has leftovers. It was an astounding miracle. People didn't get just a snack. It's not like when we do communion where you get just kind of a representative piece of bread. <laughs> and a little cup of... You know, it, was, it says that in verse 11, they ate as much as they wanted. It says in verse 12, they had eaten their fill. These folks were stuffed. For all those old folks, they were doing the Fred Sanford walk. 
You know, if you remember that show. They, they were stuffed. It was an electric moment. A most powerful and amazing miracle had been done. People who are used to struggling and fighting to just get enough to eat, scraping by to have enough food to eat, have had all they wanted provide miraculously. People are so excited, they say in verse 14, that they say, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. This is the guy who will make Israel great again. This, He, someone probably started making up (laughs) t-shirts. Jesus. (laughs) Somebody started printing up bumper stickers for donkeys. Jesus for King. (laughs) We see it here in the next verse, verse 15. Jesus perceived that these people wanted to take Him by force and make Him King. All of that, I imagine the disciples were wanting to bask in the glow and the glory of this moment. Wow! Everybody is finally understanding what we knew when we started this thing. This is the Christ, the Messiah. This is why we left our homes. We left our jobs. It's finally happening. But Jesus had a different plan. Jesus immediately dismisses the crowds and starts sending them home and He takes the disciples, as we said, and ushers them to the boat and pushes them off and says, you guys go ahead, I'll catch up to you later. And Jesus goes up the mountain to pray by Himself. That catches us up to our text again where we stopped in verse 18. Verse 18, the disciples have taken off in the boat and it says, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. The Sea of Galilee is really a big lake. Seven miles wide at its widest and 13 miles long. It sunk down in a valley 685 feet below sea level. 68 stories, if you want to think of it that way, below sea level, sunk down this valley. And and in that valley, often what will happen is winds will come off of the Mediterranean Sea and come over the ridge of mountains and then rush down the mountainsides and across the water. And violent storms will erupt and take place on that little lake. How bad was this? Matthew says that they were being battered by the waves because the wind was against them. If I understand the text correctly, they were, the intention was to go up, kind of hug the shore, go up towards Bethsaida and then, then around to Capernaum. But the wind, according to Matthew, has blown them off course over a mile out into the middle of the sea. Verse 18, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But He said to them, here's our verse, it is I, 
Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. John says that they've rowed only about three to four miles. The other Gospels, however, tell us that at this time, that it is now the third watch of the night. It is between 3 to 6 a.m. They have been rowing and fighting the wind for some seven to nine hours. Can you imagine? And all they've gone is three to four miles. And they're a mile off course. (laughs) In other words, they haven't made much progress at all. So much effort and so much time for so little progress. I'm sure they're exhausted. They're frustrated and probably a bit scared that their boat just might not make it. They'll capsize and drown. And just then, Jesus comes walking by on the water. (laughs) And they freak. (laughs) They're definitely terrified. They don't know it's Jesus until He calls out to them. And he says, it is I. In the Greek, he says, ego emi. It also could be translated like this, I am. Do not be afraid. After Jesus gets in the boat, Matthew says that they fall at His feet and they worship Him. They all worship together and they say, truly, you are the Son of God. What is it that makes them worship four astounding miracles that they've seen in this in these few moments? First, they see Jesus walking on the water. That's a pretty astounding miracle. I don't know of anybody that's ever walked on water besides Jesus and Peter. I've never seen it, have you? I've tried it. I can do it behind the ski boat if it's moving fast enough. (laughs) But nobody walk on the water. That's not enough. John doesn't record it here, but we find it in two other Gospels. Jesus enables Peter to walk on the water. Excuse me, one other Gospel. It's in Matthew. Peter walks in the water. Thirdly, The other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, tell us that at the moment that Jesus gets in the boat, the storm stops. It doesn't die out. It just stops. It's like you're at the wave pool at the water park and they turn the machine off and it just... It's like you're standing in front of the biggest fan you can imagine that's just blowing you about and somebody just turns the switch off. It just stops. And the fourth miracle that happens right here is immediately they're where they want to be instead of where they were. Three, four, five miles away. Jesus just invented teleportation. What do you do? They fall at His feet. Truly. You are the Son of God. 
See, when Jesus says here, I am, I don't think He's just saying, Hey guys, it's me, Jesus. Because the miracles speak loud and crystal clear that He who says, I am, is the same one who revealed Himself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and said, I am. And they recognize. They get the connection and they say, You are God. They fall at His feet and worship. It is I. I am, Jesus says. Do not be afraid. This short phrase contains both a marvelous declaration for you and I to embrace. Jesus is God. But it also has an intensely practical application for you and me to apply. Jesus is God. And we need to believe in Him and to worship Him and to honor Him. As we read earlier as John wrote, at the end of His Gospel, these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But because Jesus is the Son of God, then if you and I trust Him, the application is, we do not need to fear. Three things, three huge lessons I see from this that we can apply as far as we do not need to fear. We don't need to fear, first of all, when we don't understand God's plan. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you just don't get what God is doing? Have you ever been sometime reading through the Scriptures and you read there that God says, here's what I want you to do, and you don't get why God would have us do that? Or you read what God says is going to happen or something that He did, and you just read and you just go, I don't get it. This makes no sense. To me, have you ever been there? The disciples were there a lot if you read the Gospels. (laughs) And they're at this place right now because they are totally confused as to what is Jesus doing. He is not doing what we expected. Matter of fact, I see this as a constant in Scripture. God always does what He says He will do, but He rarely does it in the way we think He will do it. He almost always does it some way that just catches us off guard. And these guys are just trying to figure out why isn't Jesus embracing the crowds? Why isn't Jesus welcoming the fact that they want to make Him King? Why is Jesus sending us away when everything's just getting started? Sometimes we fear that God just doesn't know what He's doing. In our foolishness, we think that. And God said, My ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. For my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. You and I cannot understand the mind of God and we need to just simply rest in His wisdom. These guys are still learning that Jesus isn't going to be the kind of Messiah King that they hoped for. At least, not yet. 
It's coming one day in the future because God always does what He says He's going to do. But while Jesus isn't the Messiah King they were hoping for right then, Jesus is far more than they ever imagined. He is the Lord of all creation. He is Yahweh God in a human body. He's the God-man. The only right response is to fall at His feet in worship. You and I need to be like these disciples who fall at His feet and worship Him and who grow and to know Him and to trust Him for who He is rather than who we think He ought to be. We must embrace God's plan rather than our conceptions of what we think God's plans should be. And I fear that we all spend a lot of time trying to put God into our box. To make Him like what we think He ought to be and to do what we think we ought to do rather than simply listening to Him as to what He says He will do and who He says He is and worshiping Him and obeying Him. We don't need to fear when we don't understand God's plan. That's one of the lessons here. We simply need to trust God. Second thing, reason we don't need to fear, we don't need to fear God when the storm comes. And not if the storm comes, but with when the storm comes, because it will come. It'll come when the doctor says it's cancer. Or when you lose your job. When you open the envelope and it's a rejection rather than an acceptance. When your friend betrays you. When your child rebels against you. When there's a fire or an earthquake or a terrorist attack. When the storm comes, there is a confidence for you and me in the storm. Because we're not alone in the storm. Mark writes, as he's, as he's telling this story, Mark writes that as they are out there on the sea, he, that's Jesus, saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Jesus had gone up on this mountain to pray, but while Jesus is there, he is constantly watching what's happening with his dear followers. He's aware of everything. You and I might think that we are alone. We might feel that God has abandoned us. But the lesson here is that He hasn't. Just as Jesus knew that they were in the storm and He watched over them, He knows your situation right now and He knows your situation tomorrow and He watches over you. Like David wrote in Psalm 23, you know, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. After giving the great commission where Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, you remember what follows the great commission? He says, 
I am with you always, even to the end of the age. David Livingston, the great pioneer missionary to Africa back well over a century ago, he says that he clung to that promise as he endured countless severe hardships. He wrote, well, I just, on those words I staked everything. They never failed. So you and I need to do in our own life. We need to count the fact that Jesus has said, I am with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. We're never alone. Not only are we never alone, but Jesus has power over the storm. You and I might think that our life is out of control. That the world is out of control. And nothing can be done, but Jesus is Lord of creation. And He is Lord of the storm. And this story is here, this account is here to remind us that there is no problem, there is no trial, there is no trouble, there is no situation in your life that is bigger than God. He's not bigger than the power of Jesus Christ. Jesus had the power to stop the storm, and He did. But it's interesting to notice that He could have stopped it at the moment the wind started to blow. But He waited seven, eight, nine hours and let them struggle and let them wrestle, let them fear. We wonder, why did God do that? Why did Jesus do that? Because He has a purpose in the storms. He always has a purpose in the storms. When we're going through a storm, we may think that it's a waste. We may think that it's futile. We may think that it is hopeless and ridiculous. We may be tempted to give up and just quit. We need to remember that the Scripture tells us that God has a purpose in the storms. Malcolm Muggridge, who was a British soldier and spy who became a journalist and an author, he wrote, he said, Indeed, everything I have ever learned, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness. Shouldn't surprise us because the Scripture tells us it's our trials that make us strong, that build our faith, Paul wrote in Romans, he said, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And So we do, do not need to fear in the storms because we're not alone in the storms and Jesus has power over the storms and He has purpose in the storms. And Jesus prays for us through the storms. Jesus was on the mountain the whole time they were in the storm and He was praying. It doesn't say that that's all He prayed for, but I think that was something big He prayed for. He prayed for those disciples. 
What we do know is the Scripture tells us what Jesus is doing today, right this very minute. Hebrews chapter 7 says that He lives eternally. He is there interceding for you and me in heaven. He is our great high priest, our intercessor in heaven. God as a man, God the Son as a man, interceding with God the Father for us night and day. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that He is a priest who is sympathetic, who is understanding about our weaknesses. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you feel. He knows how you hurt. Isn't that good news? When you're going through the storms, Jesus knows how you feel and He's praying for you. And He won't let you go through a storm, but that He has a purpose for the storm. And He has the power to keep you and deliver you through the storm. And He will never leave you alone in the storm. So we don't need to fear because when we don't understand God's plan, and we don't need to fear when the storm comes. Lastly, we don't need to fear wondering about where we'll end up. Just as this boat just ended up where it was supposed to be. They worked and they struggled and they fought so hard and it never went anywhere. And Jesus got in the boat and it ended up where it needed to be. I think there's a lesson in that. When we let Jesus into our boat, did you notice there it says they received Him gladly into their boat? When we let Jesus into our boat, then something unique happens. We're in His boat. When He's in our boat, we're in His. His boat will always end up where He wants it to be, right when He wants it to be there, and right where and right when. According to God's perfect and great plan for us. There is not a promise that God will always rescue us from the storm. God rescued these disciples from the storm. But He didn't rescue John the Baptist from Herod's sword. He did not rescue Himself from the cross. In Acts, He rescues Peter and He rescues John from prison, but He does not rescue Stephen. He does not rescue James. Jesus may not always rescue us from the storm, but He will always deliver us through it. Ultimately, in Jesus, our most important destination is secure. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus came, as we'll see next week. He came that we might have life. He's come that we might have everlasting life. You don't need to worry about what's going to happen to me no matter what else goes on. Because ultimately, you know if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have an eternal future in heaven. And I think sometimes wrongly we think heaven is kind of like second place. It's like the consolation prize for the folks who died early. And, oh, yeah, you died, but hey, you know, you're still going to heaven. 
you know, too bad you missed out on earth. Folks, you don't miss out on nothing. We're the ones who's missing out, which is why Paul says, I would rather be there than here. The only reason I'm still here on earth is for your sake. But if I have to choose between the two, I'm going to heaven, man. The longer most of us live, the more we realize that. So we long for. You know, there's so many of us that live in fear. But we should not. I think as I look at this story, I think if we live in fear, it's because of one of two problems. Either we really don't understand or believe who Jesus is. The I am the sovereign of all creation. Or else it's because we're just not letting Jesus in our boat. We're, we're not yielding and giving control of our life to Him. We're still trying to say, it's my boat, thank you very much. There's an old Christian song from the early 1900s written by Ira Stamphill. The chorus of it says this, Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow and I know He holds my hand. May we rest in Him and not fear. Father, thank You for sending Jesus to be our Savior. And He came as God and man. That He came to be one of us. He understands our hurts and our weaknesses. He has redeemed us from sin. And now He walks with us every moment of every day, watches over us, and intercedes for us. What a great blessing. Lord, may we never again be those who fear, but rather those who rest in the great I Am, our Lord Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.